As we start, I have a little quiz for you. David Koresh, Jim Jones, Joseph DiMumbro, Luke Jure. What do all these names have in common? Does anybody know? David Koresh, Jim Jones, Joseph DiMumbro, Luke Jure. Anybody know? You all failed the pub quiz, the church quiz. The, the thing that connects all these men together is that each of them are famous cult leaders in the past century. Each of them claimed to have some kind of special divine calling from on high. They had claims about the meaning of life. They made claims about the destiny of humanity. And they called people to join their cause. In the end, each of these men led hundreds of willing followers to their own deaths. In many ways, these weren't really just cult leaders. They were that. Many would consider them, I would probably consider them psychological terrorists. But cults are fascinating to me, and in some way horrifyingly fascinating to me. They seem to most people ludicrous. It's the peak of silliness, isn't it, to us? But they're also so attractive to many people. And not merely people of one social class, really. They're incredibly attractive. In fact, many cult leaders in the 20th century were highly educated. So how do they do it? How do they draw people in? How are they so effective? They offer something that humans universally desire. They offer meaning. They provide a purpose to life, someone's life. They, they provide a sense of coherency to the world and the way of thinking. They give marginalized people in the society a sense of belonging. When you think about it, I, none of these things are inherently bad, I don't think. Fulfilled desires, meaning in life, purpose, coherency, a sense of belonging to something bigger than just yourself. These are what I would call universal desires. They're universal because I believe that God hardwired these desires right into our very fabric in our being. <clears throat> but in one of the greatest ironies in the world, finding all those things, in, in, is finding meaning, coherency, purpose, in anything apart from Christ, finding community in anything apart from Christ's kingdom, namely the church, has proved to be fairly dangerous. This is pri primarily why someone people talk about how, how dangerous religion can be, and then it, it puts them off to all kinds of religion, right? Well, it makes sense kind of in the Christian worldview that when you give up something that God hardwired you for, for a substitute, it doesn't just lead to the absence of good, but actual evil. Listen, the problem with people who join cults, or even maybe extreme political ideologies... It's not that they desperately want to belong to something, or that they need meaning, or that they, they want purpose in life. No, that's not a problem at all. In fact, if we're honest, none of us can ex escape those ideals. The problem with people who join cults and such things like that is that they've rejected the true meaning of the world. They've rejected the real purpose of life, and they don't belong to Christ's community. It's that community that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. 
for all our concern about personal spiritual disciplines and personal growth in the Lord and personal evangelism, you hear these words used a lot, Paul knows that the individual Christian's life operates, grows, is nurtured in a community. And that community is the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts in the church. Gifts that have been given to the church for the building up of the church. You see, though, the Corinthian church was approaching these gifts all wrong, weren't they? They were prioritizing certain gifts and certain members with those gifts over the gifts of other members. The gifts were actually becoming a means of division for the church rather than uniting them together. So Paul's point in the previous 11 verses, in in chapter 12, 1 through 11, is that these spiritual gifts are designed to build up, to equip one another, the body of Christ, and thereby glorify Christ. Paul's saying, if you want to be dependent on the Spirit, if you want to be a Spirit-led Christian, you need to be a dependent on the church kind of Christian, because the church is the avenue through which the Spirit builds up the body. The main point, and you know, I was supposed to have the clicker, but I don't. So, my bad. Uh, you'll have to click the next one. There you go. The main idea of this, uh, of this passage that we're looking at in verses 12 through 26 is that God designed the church to display unity through diversity. You could say it another way. The individual members of the church, and specifically their gifts, are needed... For the health of the whole church. And conversely, the whole church is needed for the thriving and the perseverance of the individual members. To make this point, Paul uses a common analogy. We'll see that in verse 12. The body is like a, the church is like a body. But not just any body, the church is the body of Christ. And this metaphor is useful to him because it emphasizes two things. In verse 12, Paul says that the body has many members or many parts. So there's a diversity of parts in the body. We all know this, right? They have different functions. Each part has a a unique function, and each part has needs, unique care and concern. But the other emphasis of the body is that all these body parts, all these members, work together to make a well-functioning, healthy body. So there is diversity in the body, but the diversity, when unified, contributes to the larger health of the body, right? And this is exactly what the church is designed to look like. A healthy organism, where unity exists amongst diversity. But before we get any further, I want to talk about who, who is Paul talking to anyways? What does he mean when he says in in verse 27, at the very end, you are the body of Christ? Well, first, if you're an unbeliever here today, or if if you don't identify as a Christian here, maybe you're just checking out what we're doing, I want you to know that this text that we're looking at is primarily directed towards Christians. Specifically, Christians who have committed themselves to a local church. So in a sense, you're kind of listening from outside to a a family conversation. Perhaps Jesus intrigues you. Most people are intrigued by Jesus. He's uh, He's kind of universally cool to most people. You can be a conservative, 
or you can be a traditionalist, or you can be a liberal and a progressive, and you both can claim Jesus as your, as your homeboy, as your guy. After all, his, his character is impeccable. But you're probably thinking, the church not so much. Definitely doesn't have impeccable character. It's not incredibly cool. In fact, perhaps you think it's quite irrelevant. Well, I hope you can see from 1 Corinthians 12, God's vision for the church. You'll see his slow, arduous plan for making the church into the image of Christ. Christian, specifically members of of Rotherham Evangelical Church here today, this text is directed at you. You are the body of Christ, just like he says to the Corinthian church in verse 27. But you might say, I thought all Christians were the body of Christ. You see, in the New Testament, each local church is not simply part of the whole. It's not as if the Corinthian church is just a sliver of the body, maybe a a bit of a kneecap or something. No, the local church is the outcropping of the universal church. The local church, this church, is the exemplar of the whole in a particular location. He can truthfully say to the Corinthian church or to this church, you are, not just are part of the body of Christ, but you are the body of Christ. You are the representation of the whole in this location. And this is important because every member of this particular body are indispensable to displaying the health of the whole thing. That sounds like my daughter. So we're going to do this in three points. I think he makes his his larger point about unity in three points. The first one is that we're going to find the source of this unity. And in the next two points, Paul is uh, going to apply this body analogy to two different audiences that that he knows exist in the Corinthian church. And those applications will form the latter two points of this talk. So first point, I think it's already up there, the source of our unity. How are we unified? How is this created? Paul tells us that we are united in Christ through the baptism or indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verse 13, if you'll follow along with me. To summarize verse 12, the church has many varied members, but they're all to be unified. And he gives the reason for this in verse 13, or or, or the cause of this in, in verse 13. For we are baptized... In one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. When you became a Christian, Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit. This is often called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's always in the New Testament, Christ who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You'll notice, this is just a quick remark. Not vital to the the whole larger sermon, but I translated it, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, not by the Holy Spirit. If you want to talk about that later, we can talk. It's kind of a Greek issue, but that's for another time. But what does this mean, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Kind of a strange idea. It means he puts his divine life. Jesus puts God's divine life in us to cleanse us. Like water baptism cleanses the body, spirit baptism cleanses us spiritually and empowers to live as Christ's image bearers. He communicates the same idea later in verse 13. 
we are all given the spirit, one spirit, to drink. The two images are trying to say the same thing, but they come at it from different angles. In the first image, we're being immersed in the spirit. In the second, the spirit is being immersed in us. The point, though, is that we are all formed into one body. We're all united because we all have the same spirit in us. Meaning the church has the same divine lifeblood flowing through each of its members. We really are, spiritually speaking, blood relatives making up one body. That's the source of this unity. We don't have to manufacture it. It's there. And you see this is important to Paul because the first century there were two primary things that divided people. And he puts those things right there in verse 13. The first was race or religion. Those really can't be separated in the first century. The second was social status. And that's precisely whom he addresses in verse 13. The one body, united by one spirit, bring together people who are divided across racial and social barriers. Whether Jew or Gentile. Whether slave or free. The body of Christ is a community formed by the Holy Spirit and shaped by the gospel. Unity in in a gospel-shaped community is profoundly not natural. Okay? It's supernatural. In fact, as one author says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. Look at the way the New Testament describes the church. Those who were formerly alienated from one another, separated by custom and culture. Jews and Gentiles are naturally enemies, but now make up the church. Slave and master are naturally enemies, but now are brothers in Christ in the church. So what the Spirit does in us when we follow Jesus is anything but natural. No, it's very, very supernatural. Now, Paul knows that not any kind of unity will do, though. Okay? After all, like I said, you can manufacture unity in a million ways. If we're just going after manufactured unity, we might as well stop. Because, quite frankly, the local football team does that better than us. Any given week, you can go down to the New York Stadium, I think it's back in this direction, and watch a whole bunch of passionate fans disregard minor differences and become very passionate, united, around Rotherham United football. Even churches can manufacture unity. We're going to be the church for hipster singles. We're going to be the church for high church, upper class intellectuals. Paul is after gospel-shaped unity. The kind of unity that can only be explained by a supernatural work of the Spirit. It's not formed necessarily by demographics or socioeconomic status or common interests. It's not even a unity shaped by what I would call gospel plus unity. Gospel plus demographics. We're the hipster single church. Gospel plus demographics. Or the gospel plus socioeconomic status. We're the high church, upper class, intellectual church. Or gospel plus common interests. 
It's unity shaped by the gospel, period. That's what he's after. Sociologists can explain gospel plus unity, can't they? They have no explanation, though, for spirit-wrought, gospel-shaped unity. And this is the kind of unity that is actually made beautiful by its diversity. So how does our unity here, how, how do we lean into this and, and help it look supernatural? Our community will look supernatural when we actually lean into our diversity and not away from it. And I don't only mean ethnic diversity, even though I do mean that. I mean social diversity. That person isn't very educated. Or that person is educated. I mean relational diversity. That person is just strange, and I just don't know how to talk to them. We've all felt that. Or cultural diversity. That person values different things than I do. Our friendship should extend to people who we find strange. We should serve people who we don't expect to get anything from in return. We should love people who are difficult to love. Forgive when people, forgive the very people who have inflicted deep wounds on us. We foster supernatural community when we repent, even when we think we can justify our own actions. Forgiveness, love, patience, bearing burdens. To the spectrum of people that come to this church is when we foster and show supernatural kind of unity not the ones that the sociologists can explain. So Paul wants the Corinthian church to be a healthy organism, right? Healthy body. He wants all the members of the church to use their their gifts for the common good of the whole church. So he presses into the image of the body even more to make his point. He even creates this kind of odd dialogue between the various parts of the body. We'll go to the next slide. This strange dialogue between the body parts is aimed at cutting at the heart of two different audiences he knows exist in the church. The first audience is found in verses 15 through 20. Yeah, that's right. This person, in verses 15 through 20, we'll call him person A, says, I'm useless. I'm insignificant in the church. The church doesn't need me. Therefore, I'm going to stay uninvolved, distant, unengaged. Let's read verses 15 through 20. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So the next slide is point number two. Point number two is simply, every member is significant and indispensable to the health of the church. As a way of explaining this, I'm just going to kind of lean into this this, uh, strange analogy, and I'm going to actually personify each of these body parts. In verse 15, we meet Mr. Foot. He really wants to be like Mr. Hand, doesn't he? In fact, he, he can't do what Mr. Hand can do, and he doesn't think that because he can't do what Mr. Hand can do, he doesn't even belong to the body. Then you meet Mrs. Ear in verse 16. She's a bit jealous of what Mrs. I can do, 
So Mrs. Ear thinks, I'm useless. But he says to this, what would the body do without a foot or without an ear? It would be incomplete. It would be far from healthy. In fact, the eye and the hand can't even perform their own tasks apart from the help of the foot and the ear. We wouldn't have a well-functioning body. Okay, okay. What is this silly analogy getting at? Paul knows that some people in the Corinthian congregation will be inclined to think that they are useless in the church, that their gifts are inferior to the gifts of others. And Paul wants to cut to the heart of that thinking and destroy it. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, the Spirit lives in you and has given you spiritual gifts that this church needs to grow and thrive. In verse 18 we read, read, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Let me translate that for you. God has equipped each of you specifically for Rotherham Evangelical Church so that the whole church can display Christ. If you go to another church, you can insert that church thing there. Perhaps some of you think that the only, the gifted speakers or gifted musicians are essential to the church. You might be thinking, I have nothing to offer these people. If you think that, I want you to know you're not just belittling yourself there. You're belittling the Spirit of God who dwells in you and promises to give you gifts that are necessary and vital for the health of the whole church. If you feel useless and insignificant, that felt experience, totally valid, must be informed by the Word of God. You who feel weak and wounded and helpless and insignificant, your participation in this church is necessary. Your service in the church is vital to us. Your presence, your friendship is what we need to be healthy, to thrive, to image Christ collectively. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about our fundamental job description in this world? Our task, we said, is to image or to reflect Christ. But this is what I want you to see. Reflecting Christ cannot be done apart from the church. Most of the commands in the New Testament on how to live out the Christian life are, in fact, are impossible to do on your own. So you can't live out your fundamental purpose without others, particularly others in your church. So if you are prone to despair or feeling useless, I say trust God. Because he says you are necessary. He says you're vital. And he says you're a necessary part of this small part of the kingdom growing. And live in that truth. Okay? Don't shrink back. Live in that truth. If you are a vital part of the community, then serve in the community. Open your life up to the community. Open up your desires, your anxieties, your struggles in the context of the church. You might just find that others are struggling with you. And they needed to know your story or your pain or your insight. You might not have money, but you might have time. 
You might not have much time, but you're able to help someone out financially. You might not be able to leave your house, but you can pray. You can write notes of encouragement. You might not be a well-read theologian, but you may be well-experienced in suffering with Christ by your side. You might not be a leader in the church, but you can always encourage someone to walk in the Lord. You can always ask the leaders, where is there a need that can be filled? Even just showing up on Sunday, called the ministry of presence, right? Praying with us, singing with us, even if you don't have a great voice, greeting people, listening to the sermon is vital. In fact, that's what keeps the elders going in many ways. So in verses 21 through 26, he flips the table. He wants to address a different audience in the church, and that's, yeah, you're on, the, you're on it. Very, very good, Sam, excellent. Um, he wants to address a different audience in the church. This person, person B, says, the church really needs me. In fact, I bring more value than others to the church, but I don't necessarily need them. Point number three, next slide. Every member needs the other members to be a healthy member. I'm going to say that again. I use member three times specifically. Every member needs the other members to be a healthy member. Verse 21, read with me. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Again, as we return to our analogy, we read Mrs. I and Mrs. and uh, Mr. Head now don't think that they need the other body parts. What can Mr. Hand or Mr. Foot offer us, they say. But Paul undercuts that thinking immediately, doesn't he? He says, oh my, you people who think you are more valuable and self-sufficient, you have it all backwards. Paul responds in verses 22 through 24 to this thinking. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that actually lacked it. So what's going on here? The body parts that are, one, weaker, that we naturally think are less honorable, that are unpresentable, all those designations refer to one thing. I think it's fairly obvious, right? What do we do with these parts of our body that we consider private? We show them special honor, special protection, care, extra modesty, extra protection. So it is with the church. Those in the church who may appear weak, vulnerable, perhaps on the fringe of society, maybe a little bit different, you see in God's kingdom... God's kingdom cuts against the normative thinking of our age and really of every age. We honor the weak ones. We care for the vulnerable ones. We consider the fragile members as indispensable to our growth. Listen, if you think that whatever gift you have or bring, uh, whatever gift you have or you bring to this church, brings you more value in the church, you have entirely missed the point of God's gift, his spiritual gifts to you. 
And in fact, that attitude is precisely what cripples local churches. Perhaps you think, I don't really need to commit to a church to be a Christian or to thrive as a Christian. That's what they're saying, right? I don't need these people. I'm fine. I'm, I'm a healthy organism all by myself. I just need my Bible, myself, and the Spirit. Well, we've already said, right, the Spirit, if you want to be dependent on the Spirit, you actually have to be dependent on the church because that's the avenue through which the Spirit works. But the context for your growth, the context for your perseverance in the faith must be in the church. Paul, shockingly, gives no assurance, no confidence outside of the church. That's a shocking statement because so much of what's going on in the New Testament is trying to give you confidence in the Lord and assurance in the Lord. But outside of the church, he doesn't give that confidence. To go further, you can't even do the basic commands of the New Testament with just you and your Bible. How are you going to bear one another's burdens? How are you going to love one another? Encourage one another? Pray for one another? Suffer with one another? Take care of the needs of one another? And you might say, well, listen, I'm going to do this, but I kind of love all Christians. Why do, I have to, why do I have to stifle myself to being committed to these Christians when I can love all Christians? I would say, don't try to love abstract Christians. Love real ones. Ones that actually exist right here. You see that's a defense mechanism, right? I love all Christians. But you can't possibly do that. Well, maybe you can, but you can't tangibly love all Christians. Love the person that that's, has a need right in front of you. It says commit. Not just writing your name on a piece of paper. That's not committing to a church. Maybe part of it, but really commit to the people of the church, to the service, to the love of the church. One, because they need it, but even more, because you need it. And you can't grow without it. So why did God create the church like this? Like an interwoven body that relies on all of its parts? Let's read in verses 24 through 26, the last part of 24 through 26. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. God has put the body of Christ together. He's put this church together with the same care and precision as his arrangement of the human body. The purpose of this entire discussion is so that there may be no division in the body, he says. The gifts that each one of us have bring unity to Christ's church. All in the body of Christ, we equally share in the Spirit, and we equally share identity in Christ. But it is, it is funny that if there is going to be any special care, 
and any special attention given to some in the church? Special honor? It's not for the people up here or the leaders. It's it's for those who might be less valued and favored in the culture, isn't it? So, where do you land? Do you want a relationship with Jesus, but kind of want to keep distant from the messiness of the church? Or maybe you desperately want help. You desperately crave a sense of belonging, but shrink back because you just think you have nothing to offer. Or do you think the church is filled with misfits, people with nothing to offer you? See, there's a sneaky form of pride in each of these attitudes, right? And I'd say to that, just humble yourself before God. The church is the infinite, infinitely wise plan of God for displaying a supernaturally unified community. It's his wise plan for displaying what the kingdom of God looks like in a very fallen group realm. So doesn't it just come down to trust? Whose plan will you trust for your life? I'm talking to you Christians as well here. I'm not this isn't just non-Christians here. Whose plan will you trust for your life? God's plan found in the church or your own plan? Friend, I beg you for your own sake, lean heavily into this community. And, and lean not only to, in, to people, lean on people in the community that look like you, but lean on those people in the community that there would be no other reason for saying, oh, that makes sense. Of course, they're moms, they kind of get together. Of course, they, they share all these customs and cultures. Lean into the people that the only meaningful bond between you is the gospel itself. A favorite professor of mine back when I was in graduate school said, listen, the church is the theater in which God displays his grace and his love. Okay? Friend, you cannot be a part of this beautiful drama that God is weaving together if you want to kind of be a distant onlooker into the theater. You have to enter yourself into the stage of God's beautiful drama And that stage, that theater, is the church. It's the context in which he displays to the world, the onlooking world, his love, grace, beauty, forgiveness. So lean into that. Let's pray. Father, we realize that uh, on our own, we'd fall infinitely short of anything that you expect for us. We fail naturally to love our enemies. We fail naturally uh, to love even our neighbor, especially our enemies. Lord, we would so much rather love abstract people that can't look us in the face than real people who can. So I pray that we would trust in your plan for our growth which is inside the church. 
And Lord, as we introduce something like small groups, which is just, it's not manufacturing unity, but it's just one more context in which we can do a lot of these one another commands. We pray that people would, over time, open their lives up to one another, share anxieties and fears and hopes and dreams and prayer requests so that we can build in this organic unity such that we display a healthy organism to the onlooking world. Not a fractured one, not a divided one, but a beautifully unified kingdom. A small little section of Rotherham where you see justice and beauty and forgiveness and repentance and love and truth all displayed and emanating out to the rest of the world as we go into our jobs and into the marketplace and into the grocery stores and into mom and tots clubs and all throughout the city. We pray that this would become the reality here. In Jesus' name, amen.